0: church welcome everybody joining us online as well like uh, pastor chris said for the last uh, several months we've been opening up this ancient text the book of genesis and we've been seeing how it relates to our lives uh, today and so we are in chapters 36 and 37 i'm going to do a quick flyover of chapter 36 because it contains a list of names essentially it's a genealogy which if you remember from the very beginning we said the book of genesis really it kind of is a genealogy Genesis means beginning. So it answers a lot of beginning questions like, like how did we get here, right? What was the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of God's plan for redemption? It gives the beginnings of all these different races that we now see on the planet today. And so in chapter 36, we get a genealogy from this guy named Esau. We've been studying these two brothers, Esau and Jacob. So 36 is essentially a list of names, Descendants of this guy, Esau, they would become the Edomites, and really the central point of, of chapter thirty-six is is this. The Edomites and the Israelites, that, that'll be Jacob's line, that begins in chapter thirty seven. They did not get along. They didn't play well together at all. In fact, down through the history of these people groups you'll see conflict conflict. In fact, what's interesting is that several hundred years later, there's this ruler named Herod the Great, he lived at the time of Jesus. And when Jesus was born, he sought to kill all babies two years and younger, hoping that he would wipe out what he heard would be the birth of this future king of the Jews in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was a descendant of the Edomites. So there's always been this conflict that's gone on. That's chapter 36. Chapter 37 is the genesis or the genealogy of the line of Jacob. If you remember, God changes his name to Israel, which is better fitting of not only his current circumstance, as he literally wrestled with God, his name gets changed to Israel. And that's what the name means, one who wrestles with God. And metaphorically, this would be the history of the nation of Israel, even to this day, as they kind of do their own wrestling with God. So there's a prominent figure in this genealogical line that extends from Jacob slash Israel, a young man by the name of Joseph. In fact, several chapters moving forward are devoted to his life. Some of you might be familiar with the uh, musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, right? Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dream Code. I can assure you that the actual events of Joseph's life are far more engaging than the musical. It's almost hard to believe the story of this guy's life. And here's what's remarkable about it there's actually there's really no miracles that take place in his life. You don't really see God working supernaturally, you know? It's like there's no parting of the Red Sea moment or like, you know, food falling from heaven, none of those kinds of things. But there is one overarching theme to his life that is incredibly relevant for you and I today and it is this. God is always at work. He's always working through the ordinary and mundane things of your life and very often in ways that you cannot fully see in the moment. That's the story of Joseph, one chapter after another. You don't see these massive miracles taking place. What you see is this, the slow and steady guiding hand of God behind this young man's life to the point from being literally in a pit, half dead, naked, to the place where he will become the number two man in one of, if not the most powerful empire in the known world of his time. So in the end, we see God working through the ups and downs of his life, even through the evil that is intentionally inflicted upon his life, let me see that again. Even through the evil that is intentionally inflicted upon his life, he comes to the place where he can actually say what others have intended for harm, God actually took, and God flipped the script. And it turned out for my good. Now, understand, this actually fits the meta narrative of the entire Bible. Because probably next to the story of Jesus, you have the story of Joseph as an illustration. Of course, in the story of Jesus, you have this individual who's perfectly sinless. He's crucified. That's like a really evil thing. And what God does is he flips the script and he uses that to be a blessing to everybody because it's through the death of Jesus that salvation comes. So this is some of the best historical non-fictional narrative ever written, all right? So get ready, Genesis chapter 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. That would be in the land of Canaan. Eventually, this would be the land that God said, this is gonna be yours to your people, take it over. But right now, it's hostile territory. The Canaanites were big, they were bad. They didn't like foreigners. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, the word generation literally means Genesis, hence the title of the book. So now you're understanding the Genesis, the beginnings, the genealogy of the line of Jacob slash Israel. See, the question should be asked, how did the nation of Israel come about? And perhaps more importantly, why are they even still around? I've joked with you before. When's the last time you had lunch with a Hittite? Or a Jebusite? Or an Amorite? Those races have come and gone. But the Israelites are still here. Why do you think that is? Because God said they would still be here. That's why. So these are questions we want to ask. How did this, how did this Israel, how did, how did it even come about? Well, you're going to get the genesis of it through the genealogy right now. So there's this kid named Joseph. He's young, 17 years old. Verse 2. He's out pastoring the flock with his older brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilha and These are his father's wives. Jacob would have four. And Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to their father. Now Israel, you see the name changed, Jacob Israel. That's what God did to him. So the name now is interchangeable, Jacob and Israel. Now Jacob Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Why? Because he was the son of his old age. He's kind of proud that he could have this this son. He could still have children as he got older. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when the older brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, than all his brothers, they hated him. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. So let's unpack some of this family Drama. Jacob has 12 sons from four different wives. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Nowhere in the Bible does God tell a man to marry more than one woman. There was a time when Jacob didn't always obey God, so he gets himself into a lot of family drama. He marries four wives. But he has a favorite wife, and and her name is Rachel. And uh, the last two children born to Rachel seem to be extra special to Joseph. You have Benjamin. He was the last one born, and... As he's born, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. But before Benjamin, there's Joseph. And there's something about Joseph that that Jacob just loves. Uh, He's kind of the good kid in the family, or at least he projects that image, or at least he's able to persuade dad that he's the good one in the family. Because he's got some older brothers and and they're, you know, they've kind of gone their own way. You know, he's got a couple brothers that are are murderers, they're liars, they're deceitful. Joseph doesn't appear to be that. He he appears to be the good kid. So for whatever reason, um, Jacob has this strong affinity for the boy. So much so that he gives him a really special gift that he doesn't give to anybody else. Then the other boys get it, and that's this, this coat. So what's the deal with this coat? Well, it's kind of interesting. Many uh, Bible translators use the word many-colored or various colors to describe it, but it's not quite so simple an explanation. The same exact word is found in 2 Samuel, and there it's used to describe a coat with long sleeves. In fact, if you're reading from the English Standard Version, there's a little footnote which is really, really good. And that little footnote says, long sleeves. So in 2 Samuel, the same word is used to describe this long-sleeved coat that is worn by the children of royalty. When the long-sleeved coat is given It is given to the firstborn son. And that signifies his place in the family of prestige and honor and privilege and responsibility. I kind of think the translation doesn't have so much to do with the coat being like, you know, wow, it's really sequined out. Now, you know, you got like some Liberace stuff going on. Nice coat, you know. I don't think it's quite so much that. What I think it is is I think it actually signifies the fact that dad thinks he's really special. I mean, like firstborn special because they hate him for it and they can barely even come, I don't want to talk to this guy he keeps wearing this coat around that dad gives him can't even speak to the little brother a lot of drama building up here obviously uh, favoritism does nothing to promote family harmony but the young man also lacks some self-awareness um because he uh, he has a couple dreams that he shares with everybody, but before he gets to the sharing of these dreams, the text says that he brings a bad report about his brothers. It's interesting here because the Hebrew word is dibah for report, and whenever that word is used in the Old Testament, it uh, it describes a lie a falsehood and the word bad is actually the word evil so what Joseph does is he brings an evil misrepresentation of what his brothers are doing back to dad isn't that interesting maybe this is his way of getting on dad's good side like hey dad I went and I saw what um, what my brothers are doing they're not doing such a good job out there if you ask me kind of lazy not really fulfilling their responsibilities dad and then he makes matters worse by sharing with them this this dream he receives verse 5 now joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more now remember he's young he's impetuous i think he lacks a little bit of self-awareness here he said to them Hear this dream that I have dreamed, brothers. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and they bowed down to mine. His brothers are reading between the lines, and they say, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? Like our sheaves bow down to yours? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph has this self-exalting vision. And what's crazy is that five chapters later, this vision actually comes true. So the brother's response is very predictable. It's like, you spoiled little Brad! How dare you say that to us? And what's interesting is as you you read the accounts of these dreams and visions, uh, they come in pairs for Joseph. And a couple commentators noted that this might be God's way of affirming what's being said in the dream, that it actually will come to pass. They come in pairs. This doubling seems to be for the purpose of emphasis. But, but then he gets this other dream, and, and it's a celestial dream. In verse 9, uh, then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. and said, behold, I had another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So let's just remove the, the imagery of the sheaf. Now the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the ground before you? The sun and the moon, that would be mom and dad. And the, the 11 stars, that would be the 11 stars. Brothers. Now, what's interesting, verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So while he rebukes him, dad is also going, I got to think about this a little bit. <laughs> like, what could this mean? Could this be true? What possible scenario in life could there be that we all end up bowing down to Joseph? So he's thinking this stuff through. Um, none of them know how God is about to just quietly and sovereignly direct the course of everybody's life moving forward through the ordinary and mundane things but also through human evil and sin. Again, no blatant miracles in this story just the dreams of a young boy who misrepresents the actions of his brothers, lacks the maturity of self-restraint and um, no problem for God. By the way, with this, Joseph's fate is sealed and his brothers want him gone. Uh, they're preparing to put a rope around his neck. This is an all too real family, verse 12. Now. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And and Joseph says, I'm here, I'm here, whatever you need. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word, report back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? says, I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, well, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So jo- Joseph is happy to play uh, daddy's little spy again. Now, what's interesting is that in, in all, this will be about, about a 65-mile journey, They're traveling on average, you know, maybe about 10, 12 miles a day. So this is a week-long journey. In other words, he's far from home. He's wandering around providentially, providentially, no great miracles here in terms of what Joseph sees, but this guy just kind of enters into the picture and he's like, hey, what are you doing? What are you looking for? And Joseph's like, well, I'm looking for my brothers. And this guy happens to know where they are. So he says, well, you got to go to Dothan. So he's on his way. So now here comes Joseph. And you can see this young man blinged out from a long ways away. And his brothers take notice. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. You know, a long way from home, he could run into bad people, thieves, bandits, wild animals. A lot lot could happen to a young man when far away from home. then we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, he's the oldest, heard it, he rescued Joseph out of their hands by saying, no, no, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Let's just throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Let's just throw him into this pit. Sounds really sincere, right? Like, all right, man, big brothers, like right, stepping up and Defending him? Well, actually not so much. Here's the reason why. So that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Like he wants to manipulate the situation to make himself look better to dad. Let's throw him in the pit and then later I'll go back and I'll rescue him. It's like, here dad, I found him in a pit. (laughs) So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. In a word, human anger, so it's 9-11. Some of us are old enough to remember 21 years ago, the events like it was yesterday. I remember exactly where I was. The whole world got to see human anger on display. The entire world in one moment got to see human anger on display. Last night, I'm with some guys from church. We're at a restaurant, and we're watching the fights. In walks a group of people, a bunch of uh, young kids, maybe 10, 11 years old, and their parents. And they're cute little football players, right? They must have just finished up playing a game. And so the restaurant's getting really loud. The kids are having a great time. It's super noisy in this place. The place is packed. Everybody's having a good time until one of the little kids starts crying, and he says that he was punched by another boy. Next thing you know, some words are flying between parents, and then a mob of parents forms, and then these two dads start throwing hands, right, in the middle of the restaurant. So Arizona's kind of the Wild West. You got you to be thoughtful in these situations. You know what I'm saying? Because about 50% of the dudes are carrying in this state. You know what I'm saying? So I'm thinking, de-escalate, de-escalate. So I, I, I walked over to the mom whose son allegedly threw the first punch, and I said, hey, you know, you might want to just sit down. The police are, are, are on the way. De-escalate. A human anger. It's funny because one of the young guys from the church who was with us walked over and he whispers in my ear, I always wanted to be in a bar fight. <laughs> I felt the need to share a little bit of that story with you because if there's any video out there and I'm on it, that's the deal, okay, guys? That's the extent of it, all right? For real, that's the extent of it. <laughs> so you can imagine this scene, you can imagine this scene. They see him from afar and all of a sudden they're like, Whew. the heart starts to race a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's like the adrenaline begins to kick in and this is all fight and not flight. We're going to shut this kid up and we'll see what of his dreams. We won't hear another dream from this kid, will we, brothers? It's dangerous out here so far from home. Let's kill him. Where is God in all of this? Well, it's interesting because suddenly, Reuben, out of the evil intentions of his heart, says, let's not kill him. No, let's not shed any blood, guys. Come on. This is kin. Let's just throw him into the pit. Uh, well, uh, they, they do beat him up because the word for stripped is a super violent word. It's the word that was used to describe uh, the skinning of an animal. They pound this kid, man. This is a full-on assault. I think they probably stripped him naked. We'll take your coat, we'll take your clothes. That was part of the, the, the pain of the cross was not just the physical pain, but it was the humiliation of basically being stripped naked at eye level with somebody, and you're defenseless. And then they sit down to eat, nothing like a good beating to give you an appetite. Um, It's interesting, years later they will admit their guilt. They know they did wrong when they did not respond to his pleading with them. Every single one of these boys has a serious authority problem. Reuben is insincere. Seems very desperate for young Joseph. So where is God in all of this? Well, suddenly there's a change of of plans. They sit down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So from out of nowhere, there's this caravan of traders that shows up. Brother Judah has an idea. He's the entrepreneur of the group. He wants to make some money off of them. Let's sell them. Shekel, a little less than half of an ounce. I don't know, what's what the price of silver today? 20 bucks an ounce, so you're talking maybe eight bucks, eight times, what is it, 16. So it's, it's not a lot of money. Roughly $160, probably divided by 11. So what's that, about 15 bucks a piece. They're each gonna make about 15 bucks a piece in today's money. Uh, Joseph begins the day wearing this beautiful coat. He ends the day stripped and in chains, a slave. Well, life can take some very quick turns in a very short amount of time. Um, The brothers are thinking, this is fantastic. We will never hear or see this boy again. Spoiler alert. They do see him again. And when they see him next, guess what they'll be doing? they're gonna be bowing down before him. Isn't that interesting? Um, I think we already we can probably stop asking the question, where is God in all of this? Because you probably have a sense that you wanna do that in your life like I do. That's really not the question anymore. That really exposes our own short-sightedness because the reality is God is all up in it. He's all throughout the story. for the same reason God is all up in your story. You, you see that God's hand is moving you closer to him. And what this means is very often you will be confronted with things in your life that are painful and challenging. And the question is how do you view those things? Um, the brothers displayed words, actions, and attitudes, lifestyles that were inconsistent with what God wanted, just really bad attitudes. Really, again, as you'll see moving forward, at the heart of this is an authority problem. But the coat is at the center of the story, and it's kind of interesting to think it through because the coat begins as an object of a father's love for his child. And then the, the coat becomes an object, a symbolism of brother's hatred toward another brother and what you're about to see next is that the coat now becomes an object a symbol of some deep deception verse 29 when reuben returned to the pit and saw that joseph was not in the pit he tore his clothes the reason why this guy tore his clothes is because as the oldest he would be responsible for the welfare of his younger brother He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And then he says, and what's going to happen to me? This is going to come down on me. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, look what we found. I don't know, we kind of think it might be Joseph's robe. Not sure. Dad, can you identify it for us? And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. No doubt Joseph has been shredded and he's dead. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. This is the traditional posture of one who is in mourning. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. He said, I'm going to grieve this to my death. Thus his father wept for him. Right, so during uh, this, this little interaction, there's a change in plans. Reuben doesn't fully know about it. He's been out. He's thinking, I'm gonna look good in this thing. Comes back. Judas says, no, here's the plan, bro. We're gonna sell him. Here's your 15 bucks. And Reuben's like, dude, what's gonna happen to me? Okay, we, plan C. Let's deceive dad into thinking that some wild animals killed him. Now, here's what's interesting. The very last verse sets up what comes next for the rest of Of Joseph's life because God is all over this. Verse 36 Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Now, this guy Potiphar is really interesting because he's an officer of Pharaoh. He reports directly to Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, Joseph is on his way to becoming the second most powerful man in an incredibly powerful kingdom. None of the players have any clue of what's about to happen next and how God is going to work all through this. So here's, here's what it teaches us. Um, we all carry wounds. Some of those wounds are self-inflicted. Some of those wounds are inflicted because others just bring them into our lives. At, and yet, um, it doesn't take much for those wounds to reopen, right? Even when we think they've been healed, they can reopen very easily. And um, Joseph's story teaches us that although life is at times super unfair, it's really, really challenging. It's full of heartache and grief. There's tons of inequity, a lot of injustice, and God takes all of this, like, human manure, if you will, and turns it into this compost from which beautiful things actually grow. But in order for that to happen, you're gonna to have to check your attitude at the door. You're probably gonna to have to uh, perhaps give in to some of the things that God is asking you to do that feel uncomfortable, right? Right? Like I said, at the end of the day for these guys, it really does become an authority problem. And because of that, you see this family that it was already a bit fractured, but really it's about to be blown apart. And yet God's hand is slowly moving all of these events toward his good outcomes. So the prayer is that you and I would be able to see life now that we have the, you know, sort of like the curtain gets pulled back, you get to see what's happening on both sides. And what that allows us to do is live in this moment with an understanding that everything that's gotten to us with where we're at right now, all the events, the good and the bad is for God's greater purposes. And even the, even the evil stuff. So that one day we could actually say, all that evil that was intended for harm on me, God actually used that for good. Let's pray. Father, without a doubt, every person in the room has had some kind of Joseph experience in his or her life, and it's so easy to become short-sighted and to ask the question, where is God? Where are you? But God, you're always there. You're always moving. You're you're always working. You're, You're always creating things that are in our best interest and ultimately bring you glory. and You you are especially good at working through the evil intentions of those around us. So Father, for those that are creating evil intentions, I pray that your spirit would bring tremendous conviction even right now. Father, I pray that we would see how you, in a very real sense, you've got skin in this game yourself because of the evil that was done to your son, Jesus. And to see how you have flipped the script and brought good, our good, out of that. That's the lesson we wanna take away. God, in all things, we want you to be glorified and lifted up so that our lives can be truly blessed. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.